This is episode 70 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 70 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with virtue ethicist Paul Bloschko, an assistant teaching professor, the director of the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society, and the co-author of the best-selling book, The Good Life Method. We chat about the value of engaging with those who hold radically different opinions and how binging the TV show Survivor led him deep into the philosophy of work. Let's sit down together for this joyful conversation. Well, Paul Blaschko, thank you so much for coming to be with us here on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where do you do your studies? What did you write your dissertation on? Kind of those sorts of things. Yeah. So I'm originally from Mankato, Minnesota. I grew up there. Uh, I went to the University of St. Thomas. Actually, first went to the seminary at the University of St. Thomas. Okay. I was there for three years and then graduated from St. Thomas. Went to Milwaukee, where I worked on disagreement with Ted Hinchman, who was my advisor. So I worked on the philosophy of disagreement. What should you do if you meet somebody that seems equally as smart as you, maybe even smarter, and they disagree? It seems like, you know, if you found two thermometers and they were different, you'd think, yeah, I should probably doubt the accuracy of either of these things. Uh, maybe both. Yeah, maybe both. Maybe maybe neither of them are, are right. So uh, is that the sort of thing that we should do when we meet somebody that disagrees with us? And if not, why not? Because it seems like... Yeah, we disagree about almost everything. There's at least one person out there that disagrees with everything you believe. I don't Um, agree with that. Yeah, see, there we go. So what should we do? Should read my dissertation or my uh, thesis. So that's what I worked on in Milwaukee. And then uh, also worked in an independent bookstore there called Boswell Books. Shout out to Boswell. Uh, Phenomenal bookstore. And then came here in 2013, I think. Worked on a dissertation on doxastic responsibility. So how do we blame people for believing things that they shouldn't believe? Uh, And how do we praise people for believing things they should, especially given that we don't have a ton of direct control over what we believe? So if I said to you, look, I'll give you $10,000 if you believe that there's 100 people in this room, and for the listeners, there are not 100 people in this room, (laughs) you couldn't do it, right? Uh, Right. We typically only hold people responsible for things that are under their control. Uh, So there's a little bit of a puzzle there. So I worked on that while I was here at Notre Dame. I worked with Megan Sullivan to design and launch this course called God and the Good Life. Uh, that drew a lot on my interest in virtue ethics. And that's kind of the direction that I've taken more recently, thinking a lot about you know, how do we live a good life? How do we define what a good life is? Uh, and then how do we practically embody these, you know, sometimes grand philosophical thoughts that we've got, right? Uh, I've got to make a decision. Do I have kids now or do I take this job or do I move? Uh, And a lot of that is surprisingly philosophical. Uh, And so the class, the book project, it's been an attempt to kind of 
carve out a space for people to think about philosophy in the context of their everyday life. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about work, work in the good life. How do you fit work into a good life? Is there better and worse kinds of work? So, yeah, I think that brings us up to the present. Yeah, yeah. Did you debate in high school? I did. So actually in high school, uh, I did speech and theater. Okay. I did a little debate, uh, but I honestly, I enjoyed the speech and theater uh, more than the debate. I'd get in the debate you know, room and I, I guess I loved mapping out arguments and going back and forth. But more than anything, uh, I really enjoyed writing sort of original plays or 10 minute sort of one man shows, you know, and I'd go out and sort of express it really like deep convictions or beliefs that I had, but in a way that told a story and that people could kind of connect to and relate to. Um, In college, I did improv theater and it was the same kind of thing. I just felt like there's something about this live performance where you've put a lot of thought into the story or what you're going to say or how you're going to do it. Uh, There's also this element of, you know, just you're live, you're there, you're talking to people, you're having a conversation. Um, So I've always been involved in that sort of stuff. Um, And uh, yeah, a little bit of the debate stuff as well. Sure. Uh, Given what you were describing, you know, discussion and agreement and disagreement, and then, and then writing about responding to that truth and falsehood and belief and those sorts of things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, one of the most interesting things about philosophy is that we've got so many different modes of engagement. So I could stand up, you know, in front of a room and and disagree with somebody and then give 10 arguments for my position and five arguments about why theirs is wrong. And sometimes that's super helpful. Like that's what we need, right? Especially if there's a topic that we're all thinking about, but we don't all have like, you know, like four years to think really hard and sit down and map everything out. It can be incredibly helpful just to have People stand up and say, well, here's the strongest case for this view. Here's the strongest case for that view. Let's go back and forth and and see what we can learn from each other. Uh, Another mode, though, and this is the one that really informs the class uh, quite a bit. And even in writing the book, I think we try to embody this. But another mode is this kind of Socratic dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. So Socrates very famously would just kind of wander around. I don't know know if he like, you know, had like a real job. He was just kind of wandering around. He'd he'd ask people questions. He'd be like, hey, you you claim to know a lot about virtue. What is it? And they'd say, well, you know, virtue is having the advantage. It's being the strongest, you know, it's great. He's like, okay. But if that's right, then, you know, and you kind of go down this line and you start asking questions and uh, learning how to be comfortable with that, especially when you deeply disagree or, or when one of your beliefs that's sort of a core part of your identity is on the line. That's one of the things that I just love the most about philosophy is that we can create that space where I can say to somebody, you know what, that thing you believe, like, I, I think it's morally abhorrent. I think it's totally wrong. I think your life is going to be worse off if you keep believing it. But I want to learn from you. I want to like hear the story. Like, why why did you come to that belief? What does it look like in your everyday life? Uh, surely I'm going to take something away from that. And let me share, you know, why I think it's so wrong. Or let me share, you know, the belief that I have that's kind of like that. Um, so I, I love that about philosophy. I love that. Yeah, we can debate and we can argue. We can you know, it's like yell at each other sometimes. Uh, we can also just sit down and and kind of have the sort of conversations that you just have over beers where you're like. What does it mean, man? Like, you know, what's yeah. it all about? Uh, late night dorm conversations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's wonderful. Plato, you know, famously kind of presents his his arguments this way, right? And mm-hmm. they appear to be, you know, a dialogue written down. You 
you know, you don't have stage directions, but at least you have the text kind of thing. Um, and sometimes he's reporting perhaps what Socrates really said. Other times yeah. he's just using Socrates as a character, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I always tell my students, you know, when we're about to read uh, some platonic dialogue, I say, look, this might not be what you're expecting, right? It reads like a play. There's characters, they come in and they say something and suddenly, oh, I have a festival, Socrates. I have to leave. That's usually like, you know, as soon as they realize, like, ah, I'm kind of in a corner here. They're like, oh, <laughs> yep. look at the time. <laughs> Forgot about this festival. I got to get out of here. Uh, and uh, and it's, you know, it, it's a great question why he chose to present his philosophy like that. And I'm sure there are people in, in my own department in philosophy that can tell you a lot about the history and, and the context. Uh, but one thing I love about it is that uh, it just reveals this kind of dialectic or conversation, right? Uh, reason, even in my own head, it's not like I, I sit and give logical arguments to myself and I say like, mm, I'm thirsty. If I am thirsty, I shall have a water. I shall have a water. You know, I, I don't yeah. do that. I kind of think like, man, I'm really thirsty. I wonder if there's something around here. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I remember this. There's, there's this kind of flow to it uh, that, that when you've got two people or more, more than two people engaging in a topic and having a conversation, uh, just as humans, there's, there's something really relatable and understandable to that, you know? Uh, and so some of the most surprising arguments in the Republic, you think like, gosh, if he laid that out in premises, I would just, just totally gloss over but he's asking questions and you're, you're kind of seeing he's got this whole view back here. Well, wait a second. And then suddenly he comes out and he's like, ah, that's why if you don't study geometry, like you're unhappy. You're like, oh, oh <laughs> wait a second. Like may, maybe he's got a point there. Uh, right. So so I, I just I love the kind of dramatic, dynamic sort of exchange uh, that he uses in his writing. Yeah. Well, your book, The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith and Meaning, is an attempt to put to paper, as you even kind of describe some of the ideas and and even method in the class that you and Megan Sullivan developed together uh, here at Notre Dame, God and the Good Life. So, tell us a bit about that class. You've you've hinted yeah. at it a few times. Yeah, good. So the class is structured around four big questions. So we ask our students coming in, what do you owe yourself and other people? Like, what are your moral obligations, right? Uh, what should you do uh, when you're trying to figure out what to believe, right? It's this sort of epistemic question, not just what should you believe, but how should you figure that out? Should you trust other people? Is it okay to defer to the tradition you were raised in? Do you have to decide every question for yourself? Uh, the third question is, what would make your life meaningful? Uh, where does meaning in life come from? And then should you practice a religion? What are the best arguments for and against? Uh, what is your sort of story, your, your narrative? Did you grow up with religion or not? And then within, within each of those topics, uh, each day we take on a view that tries to answer at least some part of the topic. So when we're asking, uh, what do you owe yourself and other people? Uh, day one, we ask, you know, are we all ultimately aiming at happiness? So we just start with the Nicomachean ethics. We start with Aristotle. I literally start by asking my students who wants to be happy. 99% of them raise their hand and there's one in the back is like, I don't know, like sleeping and they're like just a contrarian. That would have been me like in college. Right? I'd be like, oh, I don't want to be happy. I don't care. Uh, and then and then we just start there. Right. We say, well, if we're all aiming at happiness, if that's an overarching goal that we have, how can we make sense of all of these other commitments in our life? How can we make sense of the fact that we choose to have children, which I will tell you has made me so happy 
but it involves so much struggle and right. so much pain, right? It's like it's suffering. There's a lot of suffering. So, you know, does this just falsify Aristotle's view? Look, we care more about meaning than we care about happiness. Or does happiness look a lot different than we might have expected, right? Is, is happiness more than this sort of, you know, state of contentedness? Or uh, we use the positive psychologist like Martin Seligman and we say, is it more than this kind of subjective well-being? Just feeling like, yeah, things are going pretty well for me right now. Uh, and then we just kind of open the door into that question and see where it leads. Ask, you know, Mill and Kant and all these sort of thinkers, Elizabeth Anscombe, to kind of weigh in and, and almost like an overarching dialogue throughout the class. Uh, and then just invite the students in and say, OK, now we want to know, what do you think? Uh, so the end of the class, we have uh, this big assignment called the Apology Assignment, where they basically write their version of Augustine's Confessions, right? They say, hey, here's the story of my life and here's my views on these four big overarching questions. They do argue. They give us like a good, valid, sound argument. But they also say, let me contextualize it. Let me consider some objections. Uh, and we always tell them, this is a living document, right? You're going to go back to it in five years or 10 years and, and you can revise it. You can rewrite it. Uh, definitely, you know, encounter other views and, and hold them up against this document. This is kind of a, a baseline or a starting point. Um, so that's, that's, you know, in broad strokes, the yeah. class and what yeah. it's about. How do the kids respond? Oh, my gosh. This is my favorite part about teaching, about being here. Uh, they are incredible. You know, when you, when you set a task like this in front of them, uh, a lot of them come in and they, they say like week one or week two, they're like, man, I'm an engineer. Like I, I didn't think I'd, you know, be thinking like this. Like, you know, well, some of them will say like they had this moment and I had this in my own life where your mind is just kind of like a, a portion of it, it's just unlocked. And you're like, gosh, like I didn't know you could reflect in this kind of a way, think in this kind of a way. Uh, and of course there's a lot of like struggle that goes into it, right? It's very difficult to discipline yourself, uh, to really think about what your views entail and, and to face those things. Cause you know, we all believe things that are going to entail things that might make us uncomfortable, but just, you know, having the courage to do that and walking with them through that process, uh, assigning them a pure dialogue leader. So somebody who's been through the class, uh, and can say like, okay, I went through it. It was rough. And, uh, and, and now here, you know, on the other side, like, this is why I find this part meaningful or whatever. Uh, uh, it's just, it's incredibly rewarding. Uh, I'll give you two examples of just great student sort of interactions moments. Uh, one is during the, the pandemic, uh, I heard a student, so, you know, a lot of activities were kind of like, well, we're going to Zoom or we're going to be just in our dorms or whatever. Uh, and some of the students in this particular student's dorm, uh, they were just kind of sitting around. They're like, like, we wish there was more to do. Like, we wish there was something to do. Uh, they weren't in God in a Good Life, and a lot of them are kind of too far along or they take some, some other uh, course for the requirement. So they all just sat down weekly and dialogued. And then at the end of the semester, they all wrote apology assignments. They just wrote them together. Wow. They shared them, right? Uh, and so for me, you know, that, that it just speaks to um, – this kind of natural inclination we have to answer these questions, like we, we want to think about them and we want to approach them. We just need a method, right? We just need uh, a way of doing that uh, because, again, it can be, can be scary. It can be intimidating. 
Um, the other thing is I, I heard a student who had graduated maybe uh, three or four years back uh, who came back and said, yeah, every every like six months or every year I go back and I just open up, open up my apology and I just edit it. I just like, you know, I keep writing it. Uh, now it's like, I don't know, like 40 pages long. And I'm like, oh, it's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd read a portion of it, you know, and yeah. uh, give you feedback. Um, but again, that's just uh, the kind of engagement, the kind of interaction that we're really hoping for, uh, that, that, you know, we can open up what for Megan and I has just been this incredible tradition, right. Of thinking and philosophizing, we can open the door regardless of, you know, whether a student's going to go get a major, get a, you know, PhD in philosophy. Uh, and they can just have that then for the rest of their lives. Like that is, the sort of you know the greatest gift the 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 most rewarding kind of experience that that I could ask for as an instructor that's fantastic and you mentioned in the introduction to your book that the impetus for this particular class grew out of a disappointment a frustration in in the way that philosophy 101 or ethics 101 has been taught or yeah kind of, kind of tiresome yeah the the, the story that we'll often tell is, uh, you know, I was I was um, working with Megan on a pretty traditional Philo 101 course. Uh, and a lot of times in philosophy, and I think this is true of a lot of disciplines, we think of those courses as an introduction to the discipline itself, right? Okay, so assume you're going to go on to major in philosophy and then go to grad school and then, you know, become a tenured professor. What do you got to know? You've got to know, you know, metaphysics and epistemology, and you've got to have this foundational kind of historical narrative. Uh, so we were kind of assuming that many of our students were interested in taking this route. And so one day we, we just asked them, we were just like, poll question, how many of you can imagine being a philosophy major? And that's like, that's a really low bar, right? Like I could imagine being a unicorn. I could imagine being president of the United States of America. Uh, less than like 1% of our students, so they could even imagine it. We thought, gosh, like, you know, maybe this is a reason why when we get just so excited about Plato or Aristotle, they think like, ah, OK, like, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do the work. You know, they're great students. They'll do anything you ask them to. Uh, but, you know, they just didn't see how it connected up with their lives. Meanwhile, Megan and I are sending op-eds to each other, like texting late at night. We're just like, oh, my gosh, did you see this op-ed? Like, they're, they're making an Aristotelian assumption here and, you know, they don't even realize it or, you know, whatever. We're, we're kind of arguing back and forth. And just realizing that, that for us, you know, philosophy isn't just an academic discipline. It's not just our job. It's really a way of life. It's, it's you know, something embodied in uh, our identity as Catholics, right? It's, it's a way of relating to the world. So we thought, you know, how can we bring that experience to our students so that they encounter philosophy? Their encounter with philosophy is, hey, this can be a way of life. This can be something, you know. That's relevant not in the way that like, you know, academics could sometimes go and say like, oh, yeah, this is relevant because you could do philosophy of uh, dirt. I don't know. You could and that would be interesting actually. But, you know, uh, uh, it, it didn't want to like relate it in kind of a cheesy way. Uh, but we realized like there's a millennia long, uh, millennia's long uh, tradition of uh, uh, seeing philosophy in this way, right? The The Stoics. They, they were doing therapy. They were like, we're anxious. We're going to die. Like, we need to stop being anxious. And so they did philosophy. They came up with these meditations. Uh, Aristotle thought, like, I want to be better. I, I want to figure out what I owe to my community. Like, what does justice look like? These are practical concerns. And they're things that 
many of us just find ourselves uh, engaged by. You know, we look around and we see something. We think that's not right. We should do something about that. Uh, and so, so to be able to draw on that tradition, those resources, and say, yeah, there's a long history of thinking about philosophy in exactly this way. Uh, it turns out like that was the right frame, right? Uh, and it allowed us as as teachers, as professors, uh, to start meeting our students where they were at and saying, yeah, okay, I get it. You're frustrated when I tell you that Aristotle thought this is a way of life. And then I ask you, like, what date was he born? You know, like, I, I get that. That, that. that makes total sense. That was a pedagogical failure. Thank you. Right. <laughs> uh, so instead, let's let's look at what he thinks about happiness uh, and let's dig into that. And then let's compare that against views you have, right? Against things, decisions you're already making in your everyday life. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a huge turning point for us. And at that point we're like, all right, we got to do this. We're going to do it big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now your book is entitled the good life method. Mm -hmm. The class is God and the good life. Um, what happened to God? Yeah. Good. <laughs> so the book is broken down into two sections. So the first part is called the good life. And the second part is called God and the good life. And it follows the structure of the class where, you know, students come in and a lot of our students are religious. Some are deeply questioning their religious identity. Some are, are just not religious at all. Uh, and what we like to do is we like to say, look, let's take on this sort of framework, right? We all want to live a good life. We all want to think about what it means to live a good life. And let's start with some simple questions, questions about happiness, questions about generosity. Uh, you know, where should you put your money if you want to be a generous person? Uh, questions about friendship. We all want to have friends. Uh, Aristotle says no man would choose to live if he didn't have friends, that we had all other goods. You think about that and you realize, okay, he's right. I wouldn't choose to live if I had everything I wanted and no friends, no human relationships. Like, that's interesting. That's crazy, right? And it's a question that, that anybody can ask from any sort of background perspective. Then we say, okay, we've thought about some of these things. We've got this practice. We've got this momentum going. Now let's take on the existential questions, right? Uh, what does suffering mean? Uh, and what does it mean for somebody who believes in God, who you know, may have their identity bound up in this religion that they're a part of? Uh, how could a good God let horrible things happen? Uh, what is, what is death? What should we think about death? Should we be glad that we're going to die? One of the philosophers that we consider is Bernard Williams. And he says, if you were immortal, if you lived forever, you would get so bored, right? Like death is a good thing. Uh, is that right? Is that, you know? And so, so as we kind of progress, we, we sort of, you know, we, we use this style that, that you might use at a dinner party or, you know, a, a, one of these late night dorm conversations. You know, I, I typically don't lead when I just meet somebody. Well, sometimes I do just as a joke, but I'm not like, hey, like, you know, Ken, nice to meet you. You're going to die. How do you feel about that? You know, you're like, ah, like I just I just met you. You know, we don't have that kind of trust right now. Like what's going on? Uh, but happiness, I'm happy to talk about happiness. And then you kind of get uncomfortable and you say, well, yeah, but if you think happiness is this kind of feeling and this contentedness, what if you had that, but you didn't have this other good thing in your life? Would you still consider yourself happy? You kind of walk through it with them. 
you, uh, you, you gotta be vulnerable. Part of the class and part of the book is that we share a lot of our stories. Uh, every semester in my class, I end up crying at least once I practice it. So it's not like ugly crying. And you know, I'm like, I, uh, but I tell a story about my son and about this sort of traumatic experience we had when he was, uh, uh born. And once you've got that kind of trust, what we found is students are just willing to go into these spaces uh, that you know you, you can't necessarily start with, or at least in our class, our experience couldn't necessarily start there, right? So with the book, we wanted people to walk that same path with us. We wanted to gain their trust and say, hey, we're interested in the good life. If you like the good life, you know, pick up this book, take a look at it, let's chat. Uh, and then we wanted to get to a point where we could say, okay. By the way, we're devout. I think we say this in the intro, but we're devout Catholics and uh, and we grapple with suffering. We grapple with um, the problem of evil, uh, with death and thinking about death and trying to live contemplative lives. Uh, and and I think um, I think at that point, a lot of people really open up, you know, when we've done like book clubs or when we've done events, uh, you can kind of see this moment where people feel like. Oh, finally, like I can, I can talk about this, you know, and, uh, and what I say, isn't just going to be like, ah, oh, well, you know, that's wrong for this reason or whatever, you know, uh, it's going to be heard. We're going to dialogue about it. Um, and in a way where we take each other seriously enough to say, yeah, like I hear that, I respect that. And that's a beautiful story. I also think, you know, we disagree. I think we disagree about this thing. Uh, and to get to that point, which requires so much trust and vulnerability, um, it's just, it's incredible, you know? It's like these moments where you're just like, if you're in the class, you know, the, the auditorium is silent. You're just like, oh, we're there. <laughs> like, we're, we're right there. Like, let's sit here for a bit. Uh, we're in conversation with somebody. So so that was, uh, you know, a, a big part of the approach that we took uh, with the book. Um, and, uh, of course, we got great feedback and great sort of uh, advice from our editors. And they said, like, yeah, yeah, we should make it yellow. And we're like, great. They're like, we should put cartoon columns on it. We're like, awesome. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. it's called the Good Life Method. We're like, perfect. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, it flows out of even what you wrote about in college, right? Mm -hmm. The the idea of disagreement yeah. um, and yet even having a relationship, yeah. building trust. You tell a story in here about your mother sending you conspiracy videos yeah. and you and you end that story with this wonderful reflection and say, we can disagree, but because we have an existing relationship oh, yeah. that is already built, it's okay to do yeah. so. And and I think as you say, you know, you tell stories in here that draw me in as a reader that you experience also in the classroom, you yeah. know, this, again, that, that moment when you've got an entire auditorium wrapped and engaged yeah. is, is a, is an incredible moment. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, as a teacher, I think relationships are the most important part. Like I, I can't, I mean, I, I can learn some things if I don't have a relationship, like I can like read Wikipedia for a couple hours. Uh, but unless I have somebody who's talking to me, and that I feel like cares about me, uh, especially if they know more than me, right? Because it's terrifying to yeah. go into uh, territory, intellectual territory that you've never been before. Uh, and if you're there with somebody that you think they're hostile or like they just want to persuade me at any cost, uh, there's, there's just a resistance. There's just, you know, a shutting down. Um, but if you have that kind of relationship, like, you know, the relationship I have with my mom where we go back and forth and, and, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but 
I change my mind all the time. I like, I come to find out like, gosh, you were right. These are the hardest texts for me to like, like write to her. I'm like, yeah, okay, you were really right about this thing that we've been debating for, you know, years, you know, going back and forth. This happens all the time, especially with parenting. I'm just like, okay, I, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> You're right. You were right. Uh, uh, but if you've got that relationship and you know that, you know, she's not going to look at that and just be like, ooh, yes, I was right. And, you know, and just, and instead just be grateful, sort of rejoice that like, okay, yeah, we've come to the truth. I think we're like, we're on the same page. Uh, or to say, like, we've come as far as we can and I need to live some more. And, you know, maybe you need to like read a little bit of philosophy or whatever. Uh, there's just a, a common goal that that is something other than I want you to think what I think. And, you know, you, you want me to think what you think. Um, so for me, that that kind of relationship interpersonally, but also in the classroom uh, is just foundational. Like once you, once you can get there and you're like, yeah, we're a community, like we're, we care about each other. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing. Like where you can go from there. Yeah. 35 pages in, you have a geometry quiz yeah. kind of thing right. that, um, well, first I was reading it without a pencil. Yeah. And so I had to go find a pencil <laughs> in the house. And then of course I got the answer wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, I did not realize I was going to have to do homework yeah, while reading right. this book. And yet every chapter also ends. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned this. It ends in an invitation to do what you guys call craft, mm -hmm. a, a type of craft, to actually engage with the text and my own life and either be working on an apology or engaging people in my life yeah. to explore. Yeah, yeah. Which I think then, you know, kind of underscores the fact that when you say method, you're not just preaching too. You're not just saying yeah. this is what you need to do, but inviting them yeah. to do. Yeah. I think, you know, both as an educator who realizes, look, yeah, information, content, it's great. But if you're just repeating something or reading from a slide or, or reading a chapter, um, you know, that that's one way of engaging. Uh, but to really ask somebody, okay, take a step back for a second. Like just, just wait for one second. Think about this question. Uh, at the end of each of the chapters, like you mentioned, we've got uh, craft. So there's soul craft or truth craft or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, and that that came out of, you know, the, the pedagogy of the class, the design of the class. Uh, we, we try to make sure that there's as much sort of active learning, as they say, uh, in the class. You're, you're turning to your neighbor. You're finding a couple other people. You're actually working through uh, your sort of answer to whatever big question we're asking that particular day. It also came out of uh, the experience of writing the book. Uh, so obviously, Megan and I are writing this. We, we wrote, you know, a, a big chunk of it during the first part of the pandemic. We would just walk like all around South Bend. We just walk six feet apart <laughs> and uh, we'd walk all over and we'd be asking each other these questions. And and a lot of the questions that we'll put at the end of the chapters were just the questions we were asking each other and, and thinking about together. Um, How Socratic. Yeah, look at that. There he is. Uh, when we when we showed the manuscript, one of the people that, that I would share everything with was my mom. And I would share the manuscript with her. And she would, you know, brilliantly, like, take this to a friend of hers. And they would, you know, read the chapter together. And they'd be like, oh, this is great. But, like, you know, what, what can we do? I was like, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> well, I'll chat about these these questions, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so really naturally, I think uh, this idea developed. Like, well, why not just include that in the book? It may have been the the editor was like, just just put it in there, you know. Um, I'll also say about the 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 area maze, I guess is what it's called. 
I yeah. never did it. I didn't do it. Like Megan, <laughs> Megan put that in there. I was like, we're doing math in this thing. Uh, and you know, the, the, the point of it I think is, is I mean, great. Reader, re, uh, listener, you need to know it's one little example, <laughs> one example to draw you in. and you don't have to, the answer's yeah. in the back. The yeah. answer yeah. is that's where <laughs> I looked it up. But, uh, but it's, 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 it's this example, right? Where, um, you know, there's this puzzling thing that was at the doorway, the entrance to the academy, right? Let no one ignorant of geometry enter here, mm-hmm. uh, which has been bad news for me. I did geometry. I don't yeah. know. Uh, and you wonder, like, what is that about? Like, what, what, is, what does philosophy have to do with math? And one, uh, you know, lesson that we can, we can take from this is there's so much joy in finding the truth. And there's so much joy in, in, in finding that with other people. And there's even just a little pleasure in just like, you know, doing a Sudoku or, or you know, doing the Wordle, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm a word guy. I, I love like the word stuff. Uh, there's, there's this kind of part of us that's just like, mm, like, that was, that was great. You know, that was good. Uh, there's some sort of, some sort of inclination there. Like we want to know the truth. We want to figure that out. And we can, when you can do that with somebody, uh, even better. Okay. So if we can do that with a simple puzzle, I mean, think about how much better it would be if we could do that. Uh, but on questions about like whether God exists or how to prepare for our death, right. To arrive at a place where you think, yeah, I think we got it. Or like, we've got part of this figured out, you know? Uh, there's just a deep sort of joy and satisfaction in that. Uh, and so at a time when, you know, truth can be kind of a polarizing idea, I want to remind people, like, there's a lot of joy in truth. There's a lot of, you know, pleasure in just arriving at the truth or struggling for it with, with like with other people. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, let's shift gears for a moment. You made reference to some of the things that you're also interested in beyond God and the Good Life, including the idea of work and the philosophy of work. You're the founding director of a new program here on campus, the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society. It's an interdisciplinary program. It crosses the College of Arts and Letters and the Mendoza College of Business. Um, Tell us a little bit about this program. Yeah. So I got really interested in the philosophy of work by watching Survivor. I started watching Survivor, oh gosh, must have been like a year and a half or two years ago. And I started to realize that the working world, just being in a position where you're collaborating with people, you're in groups, you're trying to accomplish goals, and not everybody has the same goals, right? If you're working for one company, some other company wants you to fail. Uh, If you're working within an organization, there are going to be people who want the same thing you do. And so there's this kind of competitive environment, and it can be really hard to figure out what the right thing to do is in that context, Business ethics, I guess, is, is the way that we might think about this. But business ethics is incredibly hard. And, and I think, you know, one thing that uh, surprised me is that even as a philosopher, I often found myself taken in two very different directions. I was like, well, here's the, the thing that, you know, if this is just a normal human interaction, this is what I should do, right? Because this is kind and generous. On the other hand, it's like, I, I would be really dumb if I did that, right? If I, if I just gave away this piece of information to somebody that could then use it against me later. And I just couldn't figure out how to integrate myself, right? How to like live an integrated work life. Okay, then I saw Survivor and I was like, oh, this is it, right? These people, they go to an island and they have to live with each other. 
and they have to provide for each other's basic needs. You've got to cooperate. You've got to trust each other. Otherwise, your team is just going to fail and you're going to have to vote somebody out every night on your tribe. And then, you know, the merge comes and uh, it's a disaster. On the other hand, there's this layer of gameplay where you've got to negotiate, manipulate and get people to trust you. And there's always this tension that comes out in these you know, straight to camera interviews where the players are like, gosh, like as a person, I don't want to lie. Right. Uh, and you think, but that's the game you're playing. Like, you've got to lie. Like, if you don't, you're going to lose. And, and then why are you there? And to see people struggle through that, right, in a, a, a sort of toy environment uh, that is surely, you know, uh, much more zero sum and competitive and, and awful than uh, hopefully than, than like the workplace. It just set something off in my head. And I thought, yeah, we've got to think really hard about this, like in the context of, of work, right? So I, I, you know, gathered up just every source I could find that had anything to do with the philosophy of work. And that sort of sub-discipline is, is still, you know, really in its infancy. And so, yeah, that was very exciting to me. I was like, we can organize this. We can think about this in kind of a systematic way. And so from there, I, I started a course called The Working Life, which is kind of the good life method at work. It's uh -huh. like, you know, think about from your point of view how to integrate work into your life, right? Into your vision of the good life, which is, is a hard thing to do, right? We've got all of these problems, uh, you know, some really big historically important problems like alienation. Nowadays, we, we think of this more in terms of burnout uh, and just thinking like, I've given everything I can to this cause that I love. And yet I just feel empty. I feel terrible. Like what, what's going on here? Or, you know, manipulation or, or, or sort of, you know, building trust while at the same time keeping some professional distance because I don't want to become so invested in this project that if it fails or if I have to hand it off, like I just fall apart as a human, right? So I, I you know, walk through some important texts, a lot of Aristotle. I love Aristotle. Uh, Joseph Pieper, we talk about leisure. We talk about, you know, is leisure the same thing as just chilling out? Is it just relaxation? Uh, if not, like what else could it be? And the students just responded incredibly. Like I just, I learned so much walking through the course with them. And I just got really excited about kind of building this up into something bigger. At the same time, so Arts and Letters was starting this program, the Sheedy Family Program. And I thought like, hey, guys, like we're, we're kind of doing the same stuff here. Let's do this on a much bigger scale, right? So the program admits a cohort of 30 students each year. And the students have got to have a major or minor in both Arts and Letters and Mendoza. So they're interested in both business and the liberal arts and not, you know, just individually. Like, I'm sure there are people that are like, okay, I love philosophy. I love business. I don't really want to think about them together. But these students all want to think about them at the same time. They want to say, hey, what can we learn from economic history that could actually inform the way that I, you know, become the best investment banker that I could possibly be? Or what can I learn from philosophy that might shape, you know, my vision for this startup that I'm founding or whatever uh, it might be? Uh, so we've got the 30 students. They walk through both academic programs. So we've got classes that we've designed for the, cl uh, the program uh, and also just community building. Every uh, the first, no, second Thursday of every month, we're going to be in the Oak Room here on campus having dinner and then, you know, getting some outside speaker to come in and say, look, here's what the work world really looks like. Or, or look, I'm a researcher on burnout and like, stop doing this one thing, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and in that way, just creating this kind of community of dialogue 
where we're really bringing together and integrating all of this wonderful stuff that we're learning in arts and letters and the humanities, all this incredible, you know, uh, knowledge that we're gaining in, in business training and Mendoza and just kind of putting those all on the table at the same time uh, and then just walking through that together. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting program. We do internships and internship support. We're working with uh, Beyond the Dome for, for professional development. And then one of my favorite things that we've got planned starting this fall is we're going to have retreats where we, you know, have the students think really seriously, okay, academically, like, what does my future look like? Okay, professionally, what does it look like? Now, philosophically, like, let's, let's take a step back. Let's read a little bit of, of Joseph Pieper. Let's read uh, Byung-Chul Han's got this great, just beautiful, uh, poetic book on uh, achievement and, and how much we should really want it, like how much uh, achievement informs like what we do and, and, and why. And, you know, whether leisure, reflection, boredom, like one of his big things is we've got to be more profoundly bored, uh, whether that could actually make your life a lot better. So it's it's a phenomenal program uh, and it's got so much support on campus. So many people are working really hard on it. Um, and I'm just just absolutely thrilled to be to be a part of it. Yeah. Fun. In his book, Three Men in a Boat, Jerome K. Jerome famously wrote, I love work. I could watch people doing it all day. <laughs> now, it may strike one as particularly ironic that there's an entire academic course of study on work and the value of work. Obviously, this is intellectual work mm -hmm. that we're talking about that, that has its place. Mm -hmm. What are your hopes that students are going to take away from this study? Yeah. So at the end of the day, I'll tell you, I'll tell you two sort of levels, right? So my learning goal for the students is that they can articulate their philosophy of work, right? What do they actually think work is? What role do they think it should play uh, in their lives, but in a well-lived life in general? Uh, and so I have them write this down at the end of the semester, uh, along with a plan, right? So it's sort of like the rule of St. Benedict, except like the rule of Ken, right? Like, uh, not a saint yeah. <laughs> yet, yeah. yet, I appreciate uh, what, you know, what, what, what would it be to embody this philosophy of work, uh, in what I do? And it's fascinating. I get, you know, students writing papers about the virtues of accountancy, like a good accountant has got to have these virtues. Right. And in my life, it's going to look you know, like this or like that. So by the end of the class, they're at a point where they can really engage with these ideas in in a really serious way. But then I've got this kind of 10, 15 year goal, which is when they encounter the next crisis, because crises happen and they're going to happen. And they're in a way a great opportunity, right? Because you suddenly find yourself kind of paralyzed for a second thinking like, well, I can't keep doing what I've been doing. Like, what do I do when they when they hit that point, whether it's like, you know, this really intense midlife crisis or whether it's just kind of like, a, ah, I'm bored, like, what do I do next? I want them to think about philosophy as a place they can go to. So, you know, they wander into a bookstore. If these exist in 2045, surely they will. <laughs> and they say like, yeah, let me, let me go over to the philosophy section. You know, let me, let me look at the psychology section. Let me look at, you know, history, whatever it might be. But let me for sure stop by philosophy and let me think, you know, man, Aristotle had something about this. What was it? Let me, let me pick this up, you know? So I just, I, I would love, I would absolutely love if that was, uh, you know, one of the outcomes of this class is that, you know, Aristotle is kind of there in deep memory and they think, yeah, okay, uh, I, I can go there. And that I think, and I predict, and in my own life, it's certainly been true. 
that's going to help, right? It's, it's, there's so many things that we need when we're, you know, reaching these points. Uh, a lot of it is just, you know, basic kind of advice about self-care, relationships, all these things. But one of the things we need is this ability to really dig in and say like, okay, no, this is what I value. This is what I actually think is meaningful. And this is the direction that I'm going to go in. And so, so that's kind of the, the, the shadow goal of the class is that mm. 10, 15 years down the road, I'm going to get a letter from Jack or, uh, you know, somebody that says, ah, oh, I just remembered this thing. I, I took a look at the Nicomachean ethics or whatever it is, you know, Marcus Aurelius, wh whatever kind of struck them could be Jean-Paul Sartre. I don't care any, any of these things. Right. And gosh, yeah, I just, I kind of remembered, you know, uh, I recollected, came back to me and, uh, uh, somehow shaped how I'm thinking about my life right now. Wonderful. Well, Paul Blaschko, thank you so much for talking to us about the method, yeah. the madness behind it, <laughs> and, uh, and best of luck in this program. It sounds very exciting. Oh, thank you so much. This is so fun. Thank you to Paul Blaschko. In the show notes, you will find links to The Good Life Method, the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society, and to his delightfully quirky TikTok philosophy channel. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.